frankly, I think that the U.S. Treasury is probably one of the best valued assets in the world if you just think about everything that's going on, um, at least for now, because there has to be a convergence in my opinion. Secondly, uh, I do think that um, central banks, the, the Fed would, if, if push came to shove, start buying equities as part of a quantitative easing program. And that, I, I don't think it should be normalized when it happens. Um, but once again, hopefully what I'm saying is not necessarily groundbreaking. Uh, this is occurring in Switzerland. And uh, actually, the, the Japanese central bank is one of the largest owners of equities in the country. So it's not without precedent, and it's, it's a toolkit that I think the central bankers will use. Thanks for watching this RTD interview. Don't forget to pick up your RTD Scary George Round, only available at stboyum.com. Now enjoy this interview. Welcome to Rethinking a Dollar. Today, I'm excited to have first-time guest, Mr. Shalin Madden, founder and chief investment officer of Bodhi Tree Asset Management. Today, Shalin joins us to share his thoughts on the economy, financial markets, and a variety of other subject matter. So, Shalin, welcome to Rethinking a Dollar. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to sit down with us. I'm definitely excited to get your take on a variety of subject matter. Uh, but before we dive any further, for those that may not know Shalin Madden, can you give us a little bit of your background and how you've arrived at this point in your career? I've been in the financial markets for about 22 years professionally. Been following the financial markets for, you know, since the crash of 87. Um, most of my, vast majority of my experience is in the hedge fund business and the basically on the alternative investment side. Um, I'm a multi-asset class specialist. So what that means is that um, I have a very strong mile-wide experience across a number of different asset classes, be it you know, stocks, bonds, real estate, um, you know, you know, structure, credit, crypto, you can go down the list. Um, so I can, you know, generally speak pretty intelligently about those things. Um, and then, of course, I do manage money, um, you know, in a multi-asset class fashion as well. Now, the name of the show is Rethinking the Dollar. So my goal is to uh, basically inform and educate uh, on the subject matter of our monetary system and, and, and the impact of the Federal Reserve note, also known as the dollar. And so first question is, what comes to mind when Shalin Madden hears the words, rethinking the dollar? I think what comes to mind is that the dollar is like any other currency that we've seen um, in world history. It's a fiat currency, um, basically meaning that it can be produced at will. It's not necessarily backed uh, by anything. Um, and of course, there is a subset of the population, the investment population, that believes that the, dollar, um, the dollar's days are numbered. Um, as a reserve currency and perhaps as a fiat non-asset-backed currency in general. Now, I'm curious to get your thoughts on market conditions. So a lot of things that's happened this week. We have uh, the FOMC uh, result of a, a quarter point drop. We have the repo situation. And so looking to get your thoughts on that from an educational standpoint to give us uh, your thoughts as an investor as well as an asset manager. And so before we dive any further, you know, at this current point, September, what are some things that really has you concerned as an asset manager, as well as someone who follows the markets pretty regularly? Right. So um, just to clarify, of course, I am a macro manager. So I uh, follow macroeconomic trends, and that's the basis of my investment style. Um, I have been seeing a continuous deceleration in the global economy. Um, quite frankly, the global economy, I think, is probably in a recession. Um, but the U.S. is not in a recession, so I want to be clear about that. 
um, but there has nonetheless been a deceleration in the U.S. data as well. Um, and that has me concerned. It has me concerned because we're sitting basically at the all-time highs for um, equity markets. We have seen um, uh, other markets in the multi-asset class spectrum, be it real estate, for instance, come off the boil. Um, but, you know, it seems that, you know, corporate um, earnings have peaked, um, asset valuations are still very high, and that overall has me very concerned. Now, let's talk about the first point you mentioned. Uh, you believe that we are in a recession as far as the global recession, but not necessarily here in the U.S. And so can you share some of your macro viewpoints as to how the recessionary indicators for the world, how it plays out, and is there any chance of it continuing to press in and possibly cause things to really slow down here, creating a recession mainland here? I think that there will be a recession in the U.S., and it's going to be a lot different than uh, previous recessions in that it'll be much more L-shaped as opposed, as opposed to having a V-shaped sort of trajectory. Um, and can you explain that? Can you, I'm sorry, can you explain that a little bit more, L-shaped, V-shaped, just for those that are you know, going to be curious as to what that means? Sure, sure. What you've seen since every recession, what you've seen you know, since the manufacturing economy has become you know, less and less a part of you know, the overall U.S. economy, every recession and recovery has been um, elongated. So in the past, you would have a kind of a sharp slowdown, a sharp recession, and you'd come back very quickly. Um, what's happened since 19, you know, 1990 and, and, and every subsequent recession is that the recoveries are a lot weaker. There's typically an asset bubble that's been attached to it, and, but, but nonetheless, there has been a recovery. But each subsequent recovery has been, has been weaker. Um, there will, of course, be a recovery after the next recession as well. There always is, but it's going to be really weak. And it's going to be really weak. I can talk to you about why it's going to be, why I think it's going to be really weak. Um, but, but frankly, I think that we've seen glimpses of what it could look like in Japan and in Europe over the last 20 years. So there is already a template. I don't think what I'm saying, anything that I'm saying is, is, um, is groundbreaking. There's already a template for what the sort of monetary policy that's being pursued um, will lead to by way of uh, the real economy regards to you referring to Japan, and so I've had prior guests on that mentioned about their economy and the implementation and intervention of monetary policy, how it's created somewhat of a, of a stagnation uh, or stagflation type of environment where asset classes and certain kind have gone up, but yet on the consumer side, uh, things have gone down deflationary fa factors. So you're saying that this next recession that's coming will be, will, will recover but is, are you concerned with, you know, the monetary policy intervention and how it looks like the Federal Reserve is, is bent on keeping this expansion going a lot longer than it probably is healthy for the markets? Oh, I don't think they have very much control over the expansion anymore. I think the global central banks have lost a lot of power. I mean, if they did, then the, the numbers wouldn't be decelerating. But the numbers are what the numbers are. What, you know, there's, what there is is a disconnect between the equity market and the real economy and the equity market is not the real economy but the equity market is important because it is an indicator um, it's a visible indicator it inspires confidence or lack of confidence and also uh, frankly um, you know this economy that we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years has been much more asset driven so asset valuations do play such a huge part especially with lack of pension and things like that as you know Asset, asset valuations do, do play a huge part in the psyche um, of, of, of you know, the Americans who spend. 
of course, the, the, the Federal Reserve and the global central banks are hell-bent. They have to, right, given how much debt there is. They have to keep asset valuations afloat. And if you don't, then the debt, the, the debt becomes an issue. Just imagine being upside down in your house. It's the same concept. Right. Now, as far as asset valuations, and so a lot of people will mention asset bubbles, and so they refer to the fact that monetary policy has overly inflated to where valuations are kind of distorted now. And so in this next economic downturn that turns into a recession, as you hinted at, uh, what's, the, what's the scare or the threat of the, the bubble bursting in certain asset classes and probably being a little, bit, a little bit prolonged? Or can you see a immediate recovery based upon monetary invention or perhaps something else? Yeah, I think that the central banks have a few rabbits in their hat still. I'm not predicting a massive crisis sort of event over the next couple of years. Nonetheless, I am predicting an event over the next couple of years. And frankly, I think, as I said, it's going to be L-shaped. So what's going to happen is you have the event. You don't really have that sort of a strong recovery that we've seen in the past. And other factors, political factors, societal factors, will begin to play a much bigger part, I think, um, going forward. That's been my thesis, actually, um, for many years. And I kind of feel that that's what's, that's what's been happening. Um, and I think it's just going to get worse until there's a cathartic moment. No. So if I, were to, if, I were to like, if I were to liken it, this is kind of like 2000, you know, where the central banks pulled out all the stops, of course, and they inspired another bubble. They had a weak recovery, but they inspired another bubble. Um, I, I think that they're going to be able to do something in a lesser, with lesser magnitude. You know, I'm happy to go into, into why and, 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 and sort of policy levers that they do have, why I think that they're going to be able to um, at least thwart it, uh, if not, you know, ultimately uh, stop it. Um, so I'm happy to do that if you like. Yes, please do. Please elaborate. I'm, I'm also, you, you hinted at the central bank having some, some bags of tricks in their bag. So I'm assuming you're referring to their, their toolkit that uh, Jerome Powell loves to mention. And I also want to get your thoughts on this current repo situation where it looks like some liquidity issues. So could that be a sign of uh, some issues behind the scenes? So feel free to continue to elaborate. On the repo issue, I think the jury's out. Um, it's obviously emblematic of something wrong. There's no doubt about that. Whether it is um, something that is uh, the, the hair trigger, um, you know, like we had in 2007, I don't think so. I think rather it's just symptomatic of a lack of liquidity, a lack of, um, you know, you know um, kind of dealers on the other side, a very one-sided market, if you will, obviously very low reserves at the banks, um, Dodd-Frank regulations, there's a whole bunch of reasons why this is happening. It's not good because it infers that the plumbing, um, you know, the plumbing in the global monetary system is not is not great, or at least in the U.S. monetary system. Um, but I don't think it's a, kind of a, it's a trigger event. As far as the tools that the central bankers have, of course, the Fed can still cut rates. Now, obviously, they they don't have that much to cut, but they but they but they still can cut rates, and 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 I fully expect them to do so to converge with the European Central Bank and the Japanese Central Bank. Frankly, I think that the U.S. Treasury is probably one of the best valued assets in the world, if you just think about everything that's going on, um, at least for now, because there has to be a convergence, in my opinion. Secondly, uh, I do think that um, central banks, the, the Fed, would, if, if push came to shove, start buying equities. 
as part of a quantitative easing program. And that, I, I don't think it should be normalized when it happens. Um, but once again, hopefully what I'm saying is not you know, necessarily groundbreaking. Uh, this is occurring in Switzerland. And uh, it actually, the, the Japanese central bank is one of the largest owners of equities in the country. So it's not without precedent and it, it's a toolkit that I think the central bankers will use. Wow, that's interesting. And so it, from an investment standpoint, from an investing standpoint, when you have a central bank that is using a possible tool of injecting liquidity by purchasing direct shares of companies, I would imagine uh, on a macro standpoint, that's very alarming uh, when you're responsible for people's assets in the form of their capital. Now, so as a macro analyst and investor and asset uh, manager, does that concern you? Is that something that you have to now begin shifting your models and your strategies for what you do? Yeah, it does actually. It's, it's, it's been challenging because think about it. You've got 17, 15, 16, whatever the number is at any given day, a trillion dollars of debt that's negatively yielding. So in the past, what would the average investor do? They would buy fixed income as a defensive asset. But it's a, it's a guaranteed money loser for, for much of the world. Obviously why I'm also bullish on, on, on US um, uh, you know, treasuries and, and, and high-grade securities because they are actually positively yielding. Um, that's a really messed up environment. Um, and frankly, uh, I'll tell you where I was wrong. I never thought, I thought that there would be a zero bound. I, don't, I did not think that the central banks would go negative, especially the ECB, and they did, and it shocked me. Uh, it continues to shock me. And for me, what I have to do is figure out surrogates, surrogates for fixed income. How can I replicate the sort of defensive nature that fixed income provides me, um, but obviously not by fixed income, do it, I can't. And there are ways to do that in the equity market. Understandable. Now, you mentioned earlier about uh, in regards to the toolkits and some of the things in their trick, trick in, their, in, their, in their bag of tricks. And so you, you referred to negative, negative interest rates from Japan and, East, and EB, ECB already. And so Jerome Powell re yesterday referenced that that's not their goal. That's not their intentions. They're going to use their toolkits as much as they can and probably do some easing. But yet, I would imagine with this continuation of rate cuts, I can imagine we're going to see that for a good period of time. Where does it end, in your opinion? Like, will it become a point where they have to eventually address that and go negative, especially if Japan and the ECB continue to go even deeper, in your opinion, of course? You know, Mike, a couple of years ago, I would have given you, like, I would have beat my chest to give you an answer on this one. But I just don't know how crazy they're going to be. I, I really, you know, I don't want to say I give up. I mean, but, you know, the ECB could be a minus five, you know, a couple of years from now. I don't know. It really now depends on when people stand up and say, you know, no mas. Um, I think that is, you know, and, and, and maybe when, when you see other alternative investments like gold, for instance, begin to really react in a very violent way, you know, signifying, you know, a lack of stability of the system. Uh, you know, those could be the catalysts. Um, but until then, frankly, I think that they can continue. I, I've just stopped guessing and it's concerning earlier that you can see uh, a good part of the good portion of the globe is already in recession. And so I want to travel out east uh, to a lot of activity out in the Asian areas and, and the Asian markets. And so China, from what I'm hearing and gathered, is are, are having a lot of internal problems due to their debt. And so in looking at how the last great financial crisis happened, it was a banking situation that triggered everything here. And so I've had a lot of people on the show that reference that perhaps out east, there could be another trigger whether it be perhaps with Deutsche Bank or the China situation and 
things of that mm-hmm. nature. You know, so what are some, those are some things you're keeping an eye on as well? And does those really impact uh, immediately issues that could occur here or could it take a while to, for the ripple effects to come into the U.S. perhaps, in your opinion? At the end of the day, the global banking system is still very linked. And a lot of the problems haven't been sorted out, particularly in Europe. Um, I think the U.S. has done actually a pretty decent job cleaning it up. Um, and that's very much obviously reflected in the price, share prices of the European central bank, uh, European financial institutions versus uh, U.S. financial institutions. But I think you're absolutely correct that, that there, um, there's always something out there, especially when you've had an expansion about this long. Um, you know, Warren Buffett likes to say that you kind of see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. And I think that Asia has yet to see that, that moment. It's, it's kind of referred to as a Minsky moment um when when you know the cards are laid out and and uh it, i think that you know based on our analysis and our models uh if there's an issue in the world or let me rephrase that there is an issue in the world right now um if i were to make a guess in terms of where it is it's, it's, it's probably in asia we've had a chance to really cover some of the uh problems that, that the world faces as well as the markets so now i want to get towards more of the the, the positive side of things the opportunities that will be created through all these changes around us. And so as an asset manager, you said you've had to adjust some things on your end. So let's talk about perhaps some, give us some examples as to what's appealing to you to help with fixed income assets, as you mentioned. And of course, precious metals, you hinted at gold. And so give us uh, uh, some, some optimism in this whole world of uh, confusion right now. Okay, look, so there's two parts to this. Um, as I mentioned, there's probably gonna have to be a, a pretty massive uh, sharp correction uh, in global equity markets, there's um, we're probably in a recession uh, ex-U.S. globally, and the U.S. will probably go into a recession next year, and there probably won't be a very strong recovery. Um, that's just not good for asset prices. I mean, frankly, you already see like the, the Russell 2000 and, and, and other um, you know you know less market cap, smaller cap indices you know off their highs for 13, 14, 15 months now at least. Um, so 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 it's begun, and I think investors kind of know that. The question is where, you know, where does it end? And it has an end by any stretch of the imagination or opinion. Uh, so, so first we have to get through that. Um, so I'm big on, by the way, I'm big on what's called risk premia. And, you know, risk premia is essentially an analysis of how, are you being compensated for the risk that you're taking in, in a nutshell? Um, and the answer is, like, like we mentioned, in equities, we're not. And so and how, how would we measure that? We would measure that against U.S. based income. So, you know, you know, I think that U.S. fixed income, first of all, will outperform equities over the next couple of years. So, so there is an opportunity there because there's still quite a big spread. When you look at negative rates in Europe and you look at 2% in the U.S., not too bad. Um, secondly, uh, I do think that precious metals um, offer pretty good value uh, at this moment. And specifically, uh, you know, we, we ha- we've been long, um, you know, we have a model that trades uh, gold and, and miners. So we've been long to your junior gold miners, and um, that's been a pretty good trade. And, um, you know, we have a rotation program, but I, I suspect that we'll be uh, emphasizing um, junior gold miners quite a bit. I think oil, I'm not sure if it's good, but I think oil looks interesting uh, for, for obvious reasons. Um, not only, by the way, not only given what happened, what happened is obviously a catalyst, right? But um, on Twitter, where people can obviously follow me, I've been commenting on kind of a, what seemed to be a structural shortage of oil, frankly. But what was happening was that that's being um, uh, balanced against a weakening economy. So generally, a weakening economy is not very good for oil. 
Um, but you have, you know, generally tight supply across across the board before uh, this uh, Aramco incident. I'm, I'm pretty constructive on oil. And overall, I think that um, given the monetary environment that I expect and the sort of levers that I expect central banks to use um, in the next cycle, uh, people might want to start sharpening their pencil on commodities and commodity companies in general. I think a, a commodity cycle awaits us. Understandable. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned about, you know, being long uh, gold or precious metals, rather. And so, my, Michael, another question is, as far, as far as actually holding the physical, I'm not sure when you mean by long, are you actually in the, the, the paper market or the digital, like ETFs, things of that nature? Or do you encourage people also to hold physical as well as somewhat of a, some people say insurance policy or hedge, but I, I look at gold and silver as actual money or lawful money in a sense from an historical standpoint. But what's your actual position on possession of metals? Is that something that you encourage or you know, would recommend? I think that people should explore their options on that front. I don't think it's an issue right now. And so for now, I'm content with trading in the paper market. Um, but, you know, explore uh, options, explore ETFs, for instance, that hold physical gold, um, explore actually owning physical gold, explore stable currencies in the crypto world that, that, that are backed by physical gold. There's all sorts of different ways that I think that people can approach um, but I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it's obviously kind of hard these days to, um, to hold gold bars in your house. Um, so any sort of alternative methods that one can feel comfortable with, I think are, are perfectly sufficient routes. Understandable. Now, as, a, as an asset manager, you reference that the cryptocurrency blockchain sector a, a few times throughout our discussion. So I'm curious to get your take on that. And so I've, this is predominantly a precious metals channel. Everyone's gold, silver, bugs, and we have a few of the younger population that's heavy cryptocurrency wise. So what are your thoughts on that as an asset class, as well as the, the future of that technology and any particular coins that might be of value? Because you reference that uh, gold-backed coins or whatnot, so I'm aware of a couple of those. But where do you stand as an asset manager, and do you share information with your clients on the uh, opportunities that uh, present themselves in cryptocurrencies? Yeah, you know, we, we actually have sharpened our pencils and done quite a bit of work in the crypto space. So we have a number of uh, crypto models that we trade, um, specifically around Bitcoin, to be fair, um, just given the, the liquidity um, that Bitcoin provides. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we do like Bitcoin. It's obviously, it's, it's, it's created itself as the leader. Um, and if you look at its dominance across all other um, alt currencies, um, it's, it's, it's quite impressive. And so we, we, you know, we think that crypto in general and Bitcoin in, in particular, it's fascinating. It's, 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 I wrote about this to our investors that I think that it's really the, the ultimate momentum asset, if you will, um, that, you know, think about it, right? And this oil, this oil thing is a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a, of a template, but you've had supply just been knocked out of the market, right? So even at a given level demand, that's going to cause prices to rise, right? Crypto does that naturally through the difficulty algorithm, right? It's, it's, the, 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 effectively, not, not, not precisely, but effectively, as Bitcoin rises, it actually becomes more difficult to mine. Therefore, there's less supply. Whereas, you know, if you think about, you know, any other commodity, when it rises, people will go out and, you know, drill and, 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 and drill, baby drill and do whatever. Um, to, to bring on more supply, to take advantage of that. Bitcoin makes that especially hard. So it's prone to, um, you know, fantastic moves, if you will. 
um, you know, when the sentiment is in the, is in the right place. And so in a world where central bank might be at minus 1% or, or, or even worse and, you know, buying, buying equities, why wouldn't you own crypto? Right. Good point there. And so, Shalomana, it's been great having you join us. And I want to kind of round this off. And so getting your thoughts on the future outlook of the Federal Reserve note, also known as a dollar. And so you, you hinted that just a minute ago about if central banks going negative one or, or going low and buying equities. Therefore, I'd imagine the world would probably look at the dollar uh, at a, in a different light, especially when it comes to reserve currency. So give me your thoughts, opinions, two, five, ten years down the line, the Federal Reserve note as a reserve currency. Is it something you think will still be around in, in that same nature uh, globally, or perhaps can we be looking at something different? You know, look, it's extremely path dependent. The U.S. is a lot like Great Britain. The pound still exists today. It's just worth a hell of a lot less than it was um, at the heyday of the British Empire. And, and I expect the same sort of um, trajectory for the dollar. Um, it's going to continue to be um, to have less emphasis on, uh, you know, in global portfolios. There might even be alternate methods of, um, you know, to, to, to run the banking system, um, which have been proposed by, by some countries and, and they seem to get bombed when that happens, but <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. Um, but, but yeah, you know, a de-emphasis of the dollar yeah, the, the U.S. does does benefit from 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 being a um, uh, a reserve currency in, in many different in many different ways, and so yeah, that's going to be overall problematic. You're going to see, you know, kind of a deterioration of standard of living in this country. I think, you know, frankly, I think you're going to see the country become much more insular as well. Right. Uh, well, I do agree as well. And so it's been great having you on the show. For those that uh, may not be familiar with your work, can you point them back to where they can find out more about your company as well as how to stay in tune? You mentioned having, uh, I guess, a newsletter for your investors. Can you point people back to your direction so they can get a chance to find out more about your company? Sure. They're welcome to visit our website at btam.co, btam.co. And I'm on uh, Twitter at Bodhitree, B-O-D-H-I-T-R-E-E-C-I-O. Um, that's my handle. And uh, yeah, welcome to follow me. Sounds good. Well, Shalom, it's been great having you on the show. Looking forward to continuing to follow your work as well as hopefully have you on in the future when things begin to uh, uh, unravel or get better, either one. But uh, definitely thank you for joining us here on Rethinking a Dollar. Thank you.